Welcome to In the Gutter, a podcast that is all comics, all bangers, all the time, with story expert Lonnie Diane Rich and superhero scholar Joshua Unruh. One of the hosts has read almost no superhero comics, and the other has read almost all of them. We'll let you sort out which is which. And now, In the Gutter. With the like hamburger that had the eggs for the eyes right. and then the mouth and everything, and it was horrifying. I think that was the one. Was that the one too where they put the Pringles on the outside and tried to make mashed potatoes from it? Oh God, probably. That sounds because it's it's so awful. And the thing is, though, I watch these TikTok videos. All like if it comes up and somebody's cooking, like I don't watch the source video. I've never seen any of the original right, source videos. Right. I just see the people who come in and comment on it. And there's like the chef guy who's always like zero out of 10 would eat the whole thing. Um, And then there's the everybody's so creative woman who I will watch anything that she does. Usually two or three times because I I love her commentary. Oh, you just found her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Because we were making macaroni in the sink. And I'm just like, what in the fuck? (laughs) Is wrong. And actually, I'll I'll be honest, though, that led to a conversation at work where I was like, okay, now hang on. I am not defending cooking in your sink. But we wash our dishes in that sink, right? I'm like, I'm kind of trying to figure out where, like, again, nobody here more than I'm saying. I'm not advocating for using your kitchen sink to make food directly okay but i am Mm -hmm. trying to figure out where the link in the chain is where it falls off right because it's like (laughs) my dishes get washed in that sink right like that's fine and i've cleaned it like uh, uh, let's assume Mm -hmm. i've cleaned i clean my sink a couple of times a week that is a thing that i do Mm -hmm. right you know but that's with harsh chemicals to make sure that the stuff is dead but we use the harsh chemicals to make sure stuff is dead do i want those chemicals directly on my food no i do not but i washed my dishes in that sink that had the harsh chemicals it's like the 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 old lady that swallowed a fly i'm like where it is why am i okay with this that's like one step removed but i'm not okay with that and i am very not okay with mixing shit no, in your cooking sink in the sink eat. is not okay it's not okay because it's open to like everything not to mention the fact that if you have cats like i don't know about your cats but my cats jump straight from the litter box into the sink and try to drink from like the drips that are just in there like that's a whole other reason and i'm, I'm presuming that before they cook in the actual sink that they do clean it out and, i mean bold you know, of you, you to assume soap I'm I'm hoping it's like dish soap and everything the way that you use it like honestly at a certain point is it that different probably not but I think that there is a space for when things are different conceptually even if in yeah, practice yeah. there may not be that much of a difference I think there are certain things you don't do like I've seen people cooking like toilets or like you know try to do the the toilet wine or whatever I saw Yikes. one that did that um, yeah all of that stuff is simply there to make us have these conversations so that we are further <laughs> engaging with that it's content true. right it's true yeah yeah but yeah. i mean you so, know I, um, I i guess yay for us for having some self-awareness that we might have been a little <laughs> hypocritical but also it's like i'm still not fucking doing it like just because i no. talked myself into it maybe not being as big a deal i am still going to internalize the hell out of whatever cultural taboo said that i shouldn't cook in my damn kitchen sink so I yeah. think that there there are things that we we pick up from the ages that come down through human history and ha- cooking within things that are made for cooking is like one of the first things that you uh, you just hold on to as like as as society crumbles around us. <laughs> let's just hold on. Not cooking in the one sink fucking thing is my societal life toilet. preserver. OK, it's one of them. We got to hold on to what we can. Uh, no, while you the make world a fine is point. falling down around us. You make a fine I'm point. just saying. So, speaking of the world falling down around us, that's my segue for this week. Um, we are now moving into uh, JLA. Back to JLA, uh, where everything is, is always super Grant dire. Morrison. Yes. Everything is always super dire. Um, and there is a lot of stuff happening in this week's issue that is going to be tons of fun to talk about. Uh, but let's go ahead and uh, just kind of like run through quickly the credits for uh, for this week. Who do we have working on this stuff, Josh? All right. On writing chores is my favorite writer of anything ever, Grant Morrison. They continue mm-hmm. to be in that space. Our penciler is Howard Porter. This is... Um, mm-hmm. uh, 
still early in my interaction with Porter, and I think that they just have an amazing style for superhero stuff. So, you know, even when it doesn't work, you're like, yeah, but I still like it. I can tell it's not working, but I still like it. John Dell on inks, Pat Garrahy and John Calise are our colorists, and Ken Lopez is our letterer. All right. Well, that sounds great. I'm really excited to get into it. Jack, roll the music. In JLA number five, Woman of Tomorrow, we open with Dr. Morrow and his assistant, Evo, clinking champagne flutes and celebrating tomorrow. We cut to a shot of a woman whose aesthetic is basically Betty Boop meets Martian superhero chic, and then we move immediately into a funeral. Rex Mason slash Metamorphose funeral, to be exact. Superman is there, all blue and not looking like Superman, and in the roll call of this story's stars on the front page, there's a list of the big players, Wonder Woman, The Flash, Green Lantern, Martian Manhunter, Batman. Aquaman and the blue tinted Superman with a question mark. We'll talk about that later. So Superman is noting the poor turnout at Rex's funeral versus his funeral. And then it's on to assembling the crew for a meeting where the JLA is trying to decide whether or not they should expand their ranks to 12. A move that certain other long-standing American institutions might want to consider before they become a mockery of what they once were, <coughs> Supreme Court. But the Martian Manhunter has reservations on whether they are able to function as a team as it is. Nevertheless, they start holding interviews with various superheroes and it goes like most interview processes, long, painful, and fruitless. While they're trying to figure out how to heal the damage that damage did to HQ, the ceiling suddenly heals and it's Greeny Boop, Tomorrow's Woman, there to save the day. They bring Tomorrow's Woman into the JLA, all while Morrow and Evo watch through her eyes as she infiltrates the group. Evo mentions an android he made called Amazo, who was a better android than the Red Tornado, which is Tomorrow Woman, I guess? And I'm thinking Amazo is the new blue Superman? Maybe? Josh will correct me on all of that later. I'm not gonna lie, I'm a little confused, but the bottom line, as the two mad scientists argue about which is matter while they tend to a robotic Tomorrow's Woman, is that she's basically a time bomb meant to go off at the right moment and kill all of the JLA, and yet be seemingly completely unaware of her true identity or purpose. Although at the bottom of the page, we do see her eyes suddenly open wide, as if with realization. Back to fighting the threat of the week with the JLA, which appears to be a big ball of energy named IF, and tomorrow's woman has a solution to IF, an electromagnetic pulse which will fry its brain. The exact plan the mad scientists have concocted for her to do to wipe out the JLA. But tomorrow's woman realizes instinctively that she's been set to a bad purpose, and she can't do it. She can choose. Morrow and Evo watch as Tomorrow Woman dives into the center of Ith, deactivating it without hurting anyone but herself. The rest of the JLA find her mangled on the ground, and it's clear they have a lot to learn about her nature. Back at Mad Scientist Central, Morrow is smug. He's won the bet as to who made the better android. He made a neural network so intricate it could spontaneously build its own ethical code. I just showed you a soul being born, Morrow says. Superman picks up Tomorrow's Woman as she sputters and whirs and dies. Wonder Woman and John bust into Mad Scientist Central and nab Morrow and Evo. Later, Superman puts another superhero to rest. I haven't buried many machines, the attending minister says. And you didn't bury one today, Superman says. All right. So, Joshua, here we are. Uh, I was texting you in the middle of all of this, and I was not sure what I thought. I was so confused for, like, the first big chunk of this. And then we hit that moment. I just saw a soul being born. And I was like, oh, my God, this is so good. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, I like that you're looking for really, like, this is this is sort of a closed box because it's just one issue. But yes. you're still in here swinging. You're like, where's the trick, you bastards? What did you hide from me? <laughs> and what's coming next? Yes. And I was like, oh, are we doing this one? Is this one continuing? Because I wanted more for Tomorrow's Woman. I wanted her to come back and all of that. But I think that this as a standalone story yeah. 
is just as good as anything that this could have launched in a series. I think that that what it's saying, and again, this is where sci-fi, this kind of thing becomes so incredibly powerful, is when we ask these questions, when we say, well, what if, what would it take to create a soul being born? How would you do that? You know, and, and, and the soul, you know, we're saying that this, this, you know, Android was able to make and create its own ethical code, you know, and is that what a soul is? It's just so much stuff. But before we get into all of that, there's going to be so much discussion in this episode. I want to know what your response is to this. Like when you first read it and now, what do you think? Okay, so this is, this is kind of a weird one um, in a way for me, my personal experience yeah. with this issue, because I, I mentioned uh, last season how this series not only made me a DC person, but really kind of brought me back to comics. Like I was starting to drift away from superhero stuff and this really grabbed me and pulled me back in. And I missed this issue on the racks because uh, just timing, right? Like I managed to get the first four issues. I missed this one. So for years after I had the series, I, I had not read this one. Like I knew it existed. So now since then I've got collections and stuff, but it was just really interesting that it was this big hole, you know? Um, and, and it doesn't, I don't want to say that it doesn't impact the ongoing narrative. Cause I mentioned there's kind of a meta narrative that runs across Morrison's whole run. It does, but it's not, it's in more subtle ways. Right. Um, so, so that was kind of interesting when I finally got to read this probably only 10 or 12 years ago for the first time, considering as buying Mm -hmm. this off the rack. Um, yeah, I was just like, Oh, this is, it's well-trodden ground in superhero comics Mm -hmm. and in sci-fi in general, but it's also like, a really good superhero robot take. Like, I think that's one reason we keep doing it. Like, it makes sense in a superhero universe. But what I, especially reading it now, um, this was accidentally really on point for our discussion. Because (laughs) your biggest complaint, I think, for most of Patsy Walker is that Patsy is not vulnerable. We do not see, or at least not in a way that, that results in uh, change, you know, um, from yes. her. You get moments, but it's not an overarching thing. So we didn't have a mm-hmm. lot of vulnerability in humanity and Patsy. Now we come to this issue mm-hmm. of JLA, a book I warned you would not be well known, <laughs> generally speaking, yeah. for its humanity and vulnerability or for mere glimpses mm-hmm. of it. But that's the center of this of uh, this issue. The center of this issue it's so great. is humanity and vulnerability in a being who shouldn't have been able to do either. Um it's great. I, I and look, there are look with there's there's an Ultron angle. There's I'll tell you more about Red Tornado if you want to when we get into it. Like there yes. are precedents mm-hmm. for this both in superhero comics and then there's Blade Runner and there just, you know, uh there's no end of this. But uh I really like that coming off of a character where you had a lot of trouble with uh their lack of vulnerability, here we have just this mm-hmm. raw nerve in a robot that we are well, I don't want to say we're, we couldn't see her again if we wanted to, but if we didn't, right. this would be everything we needed. Mm-hmm. It is everything. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, as I'm reading it, of course, we open up with here's a true story coming from the narration. Right. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Um, and we've got that little bookend. But the thing is that the anytime anybody says, here's a true story, I'm like, well, here's some bullshit. Something is not going to be true here because people who are telling true stories don't say here's a true story. But the funny thing is, is that as I got to the end of it, I felt like that was actually not the intent there. Also, we've got Superman in blue looking totally different with a question mark next to his name on the roll call. So I'm like, oh, is he a Mazo? Is he the other android? Is he like, and I'm asking all of these questions. Like there are so many like little breadcrumbs Mm -hmm. that in a closed, an enclosed story world would be answered within the pages of that particular. (laughs) issue I know right yeah so here I am I'm picking up on all these things I'm like oh there's this oh there's this oh there's this none of it none of it plays out right so I'm completely distracted by all the breadcrumbs none of that has anything to do with anything and then I get hit in the face with this like amazing story that I was not expecting so even though like I would like answers to those questions and I find that interesting I love that those expectations first of all took all of my attention so Mm -hmm. I was like looking for everything for that Um, and then snuck up behind me with like hey here is actually what this is about and it is a sci-fi story asking a question about humanity 
through a lens of what if we took everything out of somebody that made them human, we just give them a human shape, but they are completely synthetic. Where does humanity come from? What is it that's the core of humanity? And as soon as Maro says, I just showed you a soul being mm-hmm. born, I was like, oh my God. And so I just like, and one of the things I sent you in my notes is like, I'm Grant Morrison's bitch now. Yes. Like, that's just how it is, you know? My work here is done. <laughs> Show's canceled. I, I mean, this is Show's what I canceled. came here to do. So no, not, not entirely. We can keep having a show. <laughs> All right, everybody. That's it from Joshua Unruh himself. There will be more show. We're going to break right now. We'll be back in a second. All right. So now we have Howard Porter, who is doing both our cover art and our interior art. But I wanted to start a little bit with the cover uh, because it is such a like classic mashup of superheroes ready to fuck some shit up, you know. And I was looking at it like I have no idea who these people are. So it didn't really mean a lot to me. Then I go into where we get to the auditioning process for the JLA and realize that the people on the cover are the people that were auditioning. Yeah. You know, Um, so, yeah. So that was kind of fun to like see all of these people there trying to get into the JLA giving me um, like I think it's Kirby Crackle vibes is it Kirby that did the Great Lake Avengers did you ever hear that song Oh, the band it's Kirby the Crackle. Brand JLA. The band Kirby Crackle did a song called Great Lakes Avengers that was basically like off brand JLA. Oh, yeah, I'm and familiar. They were still getting rejected from it. Okay. I'm familiar with the you Great Lakes Avengers. You didn't expect me to be familiar. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Immortal, Doorman, Big Bertha. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. So uh, so anyway, we have some of that, this auditioning process. Everybody can go out and find Kirby Crackle and go ahead and give them a listen. They're a very, very fun band, especially if you're into comics, which why are you listening to this if you're not? So uh, so go and enjoy that. Um, but it's, but I thought this was really a, like a fun, dynamic cover that sort of feels like a standard cover. And yet it's featuring all these people that we don't really have a relationship with. Yeah, I think it's purposefully like a callback to the first issue where it was like, here are big guns back. Remember, that was a huge deal. We'd had some like, look, I loved the Justice League International era very much, but we'd had some kind of like off brand versions of the Justice League while, you know, the people who are selling the most books were like off in their own books, selling the most books, not being in the JLA. So I, I, so that big announcement of that's right. The big guys are back. And then five issues, like the very first issue after our initial arc is like, Hey, want to see some also rans? Remember those guys, you know, uh, is great. Um, And there is a storied history of uh, membership drives in the DC universe, not always for the justice Mm -hmm. league. In fact, the most famous is the Legion of superheroes who is the, Teenage club of super people, uh, 1,000 years in the future, inspired by Superboy and all that jazz to Mm -hmm. be superheroes. And they would do big, uh, like the whole issue would just be devoted to people coming through trying out, you know. And sometimes Mm -hmm. the readers got to vote. On who joined, and it and this some of these also rants became so popular that there was a legion of substitute heroes backup story a lot of times with these <laughs> these people. So I I just yeah, there's just a lot of stuff wrapped up into this as a callback and into the DC universe as mm-hmm. a whole. Um, yeah, I I like this cover a lot, even though it's you know not maybe the most exciting on its own merits. Well, I like that it feels very standard because it's got that kind of classic superheroes. Everybody's just looking straight at the camera, ready to fuck shit up. Right, right. right. Um, it, you know, and, and which I appreciate. But also at the same time, it's like seen it, done it. But this had such a different vibe because it was all these people that we had no idea who they were. Um, and we also have uh, Howard Porter doing the interior art, yes. which I thought was really great. And I especially love the way that he uses like every, you know, one of the things on the Endless, the Sandman podcast that I do with Lisa Quitney, I always talk about Neil Gaiman using every part of the pig, mm-hmm, right? Because he mm-hmm. goes back and he finds references to things in DC 
comics and the DC world. He pulls them into Sandman. It was really kind of fun. Um, and I feel like Howard Porter is like the art version of that, right? Because there's there's no gutter here that is not being used for something, even if it's just to have like a kinetic bar moving or yeah. something behind yeah. it, right? There's always something there in the gutter kind of, you know, giving more context, giving more movement, giving something to the to the main art on the page. Um, and I really love that about that work, that interior art. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, welcome back, Porter. Like, I, I really like their art style um, in this mm-hmm. in this book. Uh, I, it's it's still not in this issue specifically, but in general, it's still kind of like so loose that sometimes I'm like, what in the actual hell is happening? But most <laughs> of the time, that looseness really works with the, mm. the frenetic nature. And page layouts are a huge deal. I, I had this conversation at work about doing a whole comic book with AI-generated art, which, ethics aside, there are plenty of ethical issues with AI-generated art, but uh, kind of from an expertise level, it's like, I can do individual panels, maybe, but page mm-hmm. layout is a whole other animal and and there's so much going on with eyeline and layering and insets that I'm not going to say that somebody who's much smarter than me couldn't get the AI to do a whole page <laughs> but I mean you're going to put so much time in it I'm almost like just learn to draw at that point just, you know exactly and exactly. Porter's a really just good example end. of that of like there's so much going on in every panel and then we literally layer panels on top of panels like a collage and yet largely I think it's still really readable like, it's a lot. Yeah. It's an overwhelming amount of information. But you are given pretty clear indications of how every page is supposed to be read. You, d- My experience, you don't get lost in the pages a lot. And that's just damned impressive. Yeah, no, it's really, really great. And I enjoy it a lot. Um, and I think that, like, just looking at the pages as I'm talking to you, I'm looking at, like, there's the blue Superman page. He's got all of this crackling energy. That crackling energy goes into the gutter while he's in the panel. Like, it's just so incredibly cool. And I think you're absolutely right. I think that, like... AI might be able to do one layer of meaning and context, but it cannot get all of that meaning and context and see that the way that that human brain sees things and feels things and has that emotional context, you know? So there's just so much stuff going on here, and I cannot imagine an AI being able to do that. We will see how all of that shakes out as the years go by. But my question for you right now is what the fuck Superman Like, this Superman is blue and crackly and electric, and I have no idea why. And what's more, they're not going to tell me. Nobody here is going to tell me. Okay. It depends on who you mean by they aren't going to tell you. I mean, the people in this this issue. No. JLA is not interested. are not going to tell me why. Yes. JLA is not going to tell you why, because they are spending dozens, if not hundreds, of pages (laughs) in the Superman books telling you why. Like, that's Mm -hmm. that's what's going on there. So, Mm -hmm. um, I may have mentioned before, in fact, I know I mentioned before a little bit, one of the reasons that you get so much like soap opera characterization in Avengers that you don't necessarily get in this big gun version of uh, of JLA is that most of the Avengers aren't appearing in their own books. Like the Avengers is where you get them. But when you get these big guns in DC, almost all of them have at least one book. And a lot of them have more than one. Like I think Batman was up to like five or something at this mm-hmm. point, you know, um, if you if you count Bat Family books like Robin and Batgirl and stuff like that. Um, Superman's definitely got three or four. And at the time we were doing a big story where he turned blue and got electrical powers. <laughs> well, OK. Now, OK, there's sort of multiple layers of things going on here. The first is that eventually that story would refer like the modern, which is weird for me to say about something that happened in the mid nineties, but nevertheless, the modern Superman story was Superman red, Superman blue. That's eventually where it would go. So you would get another electric version of him. That was red looks exactly the same, but red mm-hmm. instead of blue. All of that is referencing a silver age story where Superman was split in two. He became a, an all-blue version, not skin, costume-wise, uh-huh. and an all-red version, right? Mm-hmm. And if I recall, the more red version was um, a lot more, like, aggressive. I think it was the blue mm-hmm. one that was just, like, more rational, more calm, approaches to problems, and red was mm-hmm. like, Mr. Get Shit Done, 
you know, kind of thing. <laughs> and they were able to like, one of them went and married Lois and one of them went and married Lana. And they just, they, it was kind of a, a, a an imaginary story, which aren't they all imaginary? Ah. Yes. But DC really did a lot of these <laughs> that were like an imaginary story that Marvel would have later call what if. Um, or DC would later call Elseworlds, right? Like they would just on the cover, which I think is why this is a little bit of a side note and I don't have anything to add to it. So I'll put it here. I think that's a reference or an homage to the imaginary story is why this one starts with, this is a true story of the JLA. Oh, I think because, okay, you know, okay. it's a, there's a joke. There's an inside joke because I remember reading an article at the time where Morrison was like, Superman's got four other books and I have shit that I'm doing in this title i'm not going to explain this so you had that silver age story okay like so superman red superman blue they're floating around kind of just like in the the nerd consciousness because it you know it was kind of a famous story from the silver age they decide to do this modern take where they do a couple of things first he's just electric and blue so he got a whole new power set and um he was still like really strong and indestructible and all that but in really different ways which we will see really clever approaches to these new powers in our very next two issues in jla right mm -hmm. um but eventually that blue electric version would get like put through a prism basically a refractor yeah. and there would be a red and blue version of Superman and we did a modern take on the Silver Age story. So that's what's going on there. Every now and then we just got to shake it up. Uh, sometimes we have to kill Superman, you know, and get a bunch of uh -huh. replacement Superman. That's a thing that happened. Mm -hmm. Sometimes mm -hmm. you turn him blue uh, so that he has electric powers and has to relearn how to be Superman in the costume and gets to turn completely human when he's Clark Kent, which is a thing that cuts both ways. That was the thing that was going on yeah. over there. So that's why he's electric and blue right now, because some shit was going on in his own books. And Morrison was like, <laughs> I got shit to do here, and it's not explained blue Superman to you. Let's go. And it's not I get it. I get it. There's only so much space. Like, that's totally fine. And, and, and at a certain point, I was like, okay, this is clearly not something we're going to reference. But the question mark after Superman, that was that just fucking with? People like me that no. don't know what's going on. What was that about? Not at all. And let me say, when you were talking about your reaction to this and how all of these things that I'm like, oh, no, that's really like well-known DC lore turned out to be obfuscations <laughs> to you, right? Like all of a sudden this became like a Hitchcock <laughs> yeah. mystery, you know, for yeah. you when I was like, no, that's really mm -hmm. plain as day. It's funny. You're not the intended audience, right? Oh, clearly. So, yeah, you not being the intended audience means that like... These things that are obvious to me become mysteries to you and stuff that was just supposed to be a joke. Like, hey, mm -hmm. it's an interconnected universe. We will not be explaining the Superman business, but you all already know because you're reading DC Comics. Like it was a wink and a nod right. to me, the mm -hmm. actual audi intended right. audience. It was mm -hmm. not... Or, and you know what? Maybe I'm not giving Morrison enough credit. Maybe it was multi-layered and meant to fuck with the rando who bought issue five well, of JLA. But I think mostly it was wink is, and nod. Yeah. <laughs> I love it because it kept me distracted. Yes. Right? I was all distracted with the Superman stuff that I didn't see the sleight of hand that was going on over here with the story. And then when Tomorrow Woman kind of flipped everything on its head yeah. and everything suddenly came into focus as like, hey, you know what matters? Not the blue Superman bullshit. Right? right, right. But I was still in that space. I was still thinking along those lines. So I, I thought that that was really great. And whether or not it was intentional, because there are things that like, there are a lot of things that authors will do that are intentional mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. that nobody notices. And then there are things that they do that are not intentional. And then everybody's like, oh my God, that's brilliant. They're like, yeah, I totally meant to do that. Like, right. Um, you know, the reality of it is, is it's just a mix. Like, I think that a lot of times writers are, are radio tuners, right? You know, and mm. like you just tune into a frequency and you write down everything that comes through. And it's not always something that you know or you're, you know, like responsible for. Um, and so at this point, like, I don't care what Morrison meant. They killed <laughs> right. it. Whether they meant to do it or not, they fucking killed it. And that's what, isn't that what matters? What matters in the end is that the story itself 
was incredibly meaningful. I'm still thinking about it. I'm still running through in my head. Mm -hmm. And I love the fact that intentional or not, I got so distracted by all of this stuff going on that I didn't see it coming. And again, like I'm a person, I don't care about spoilers. You could have told me that this was going to happen, you know, and it wouldn't have ruined it because it's still a good story. Right. Right. But there is a there is a pleasure to be had and a yes, joy to be yeah. had in reaching that that realization at that moment, you know. And for me as a reader that is very much like I have been doing like critical pop culture readings of various stories for, you know, decades now, right? So my brain is attuned to look for all of these little things, right? Mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. Where other people might just be like, hey, Superman's blue. Let's just keep going. Let's roll. Right. You know, (laughs) Um, and I'm always thinking, why is this? Why is that? What do you know? So my I tend to in most of the stories that I interact with predict what's going to happen with probably like 95 percent accuracy. Right. Right. And so in those moments where um, a I didn't see it coming and B, it's brilliant, like in that little, you know, part of that Venn diagram, um, that sliver of Venn right there. Right. You know, that's where it's tomorrow's woman lands for me and it was absolutely delightful so i really enjoyed that i'm glad to know and now seeing that that like superman was blue and all this kind of and that superman had stories that were going on concurrently with this one and so these people who doing these different stories had to consult with each other and be like yeah superman's blue don't worry about it. Just fuck with it. Go. You know? Right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, and these are the things that you need to do. There is something kind of beautiful and symphonic about that, yeah. you know, where yeah. everybody's taking these characters, working with them at the same time, telling these stories. And this is something that the people reading the Superman book would maybe not realize is also going on with Superman at that same time in that same period. And that gives also additional context to that. I think it's pretty cool. I like it. I I always like, uh, I often like to think about that intentionality mm-hmm. versus what did we, the readers, bring, you know, to the thing. Yes. And mm-hmm. I think this is a really interesting example of one set of intentionalities leading yes. to an, an unintended consequence with a different audience that is still, yeah. it's it looks like it could also have been intentional. And maybe it was. It's I really brilliant. don't think so. I think it's just... Yeah. The, the, you know, your unique perspective as somebody who is closely reading, who's really invested, but mm-hmm. does not have all of the extraneous business, you're just having yep. a really unique experience. But the story itself yeah. is so well crafted, your unique experience looks as though it could have been on purpose. Even Looks though I doubt it, fucking brilliant. Yeah, yeah. For the yeah, for the one percent of people who <laughs> happen to be in my particular space with this comic, you know, um, and I think that that's awesome. Like that's one of those like beautiful happenstance things that just happen from time to time mm-hmm. and make life a lot of fun. Um, so speaking of fun, what else in this issue did you uh, connect with and enjoy? Well, I know we're gonna have like a really big conversation about villainy and about humanity yeah. and all that good mm-hmm. stuff, but I want to point out Mm -hmm. that a couple of your favorite kids who low-key hate each other are no nonetheless Mm -hmm. starting to bond wally and kyle the flash and green lantern are up in the watchtower while the grown-ups are doing shit playing rock'em sock'em robots and talking about batman's uh being scary and superman's haircut Love it. Yes. Love all of that. Um, I thought you'd really appreciate that. I wanted to pull that out because it's, you know, uh, normal humanity versus the kind of like big, you know, like it's a glimpse of humanness that we're that we're getting before, you know, the big, heavy thematic one. Um, And and I think it pushes their relationship together in the next uh, Mm -hmm. couple of issues. We're going to see. Uh, Wally and GL forced to work together and they work well together while still hating each other. And we're seeing like <laughs> it's happening right here. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, yeah, I think that's delightful. It was one of those little details that honestly, there's so much going on in that page that I did see it. I read it and I was like, okay, but I didn't really remember the context of, I remember really loving Green Lantern in yeah. the original five because of his vulnerability, because he was so unsure of himself, you know? Um, and here he is just hanging out, you know, they're playing Rock'em Sock'em. It is an adorable little human human moment and those little human moments slipped into a story that is 
a lot about humanity. Yeah. Like yeah. all the different elements of humanity, what makes us actually human. Um, I think it's just really kind of fun. It's just a fun moment. There's also a couple layers I'll throw out to you. So I've mentioned to you before when we talked about Flash Fact that this is not the original Flash. There's been a golden and a silver Mm -hmm. age. And the silver age was Wally's uncle. And he stepped into Mm -hmm. the place after Barry, his uncle, died. Right. uh, Saving Mm -hmm. the whole ass multiverse. You know, so Wally had some (laughs) big yellow rubberized boots to fill. Right. Um, But he was Kid Flash before that. So that's why Mm -hmm. you get this like this layer where he's like. Oh, yeah, I've known both of these guys for years. And yeah, Mm -hmm. Superman is great and Batman is scary. You really want to be scared? Get him to tell you a Joker story. Like that stuff is (laughs) so good. And the the part of that, that there is, I think it was an issue of Gotham Knights, which is usually a Bat Family book where Green Mm -hmm. Lantern has to catch Joker and take him back to Arkham. And like the theme underneath that is like, this is gross. I don't like it. You're just a lunatic who murders people. And I am a space cop, but also you make my skin crawl. I would like to drop you off and get back to fighting aliens. Thank you very much. Like that happens down the road. And it may, and I was reading both those books and it made me think of this conversation. I just, yeah, just these kids just being goofy kids. Just being kids, which is a really nice thing. I mean, that's kind of, I think, what makes JLA work for me. And again, like anybody who listened to Listen Up A-Holes and heard me talk about Marvel versus DC, right? I was always like, ah, you know, I like Marvel better, even though I hadn't really read or interacted with a lot of DC material. And so now moving into DC, I am seeing the the fun that is there to be had yeah, you know yeah. and like the ways in which different writers are doing different things with these stories and there may be like a different overall kind of feel to the universe mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um but i i like what they've got going on and i think it's really super interesting um and i also like that there are you know issues like this that have that that deep philosophical sci-fi because the the value like for me what draws me into sci-fi stories are those questions that it's able to ask like Mm -hmm. right now at this moment although we are fast approaching probably a place where maybe we will be asking this in the real world you know is the idea of like you know when something becomes sentient like Mm -hmm. what is the point at which a soul is actually born and i i love the space for us to ask that question by taking it out of the realm in which we know we know that souls are attached with humanity because people are born and then they have souls according to what we believe but what is a soul what does that mean what is it about how do we you know as humans you know corner the market on this thing is that what it is is it about sentience is it about like ethics what is it That's one of the wonderful things that sci-fi allows you to do by teasing out these circumstances and saying, okay, so here's the circumstance. This is what happened. What does that mean? Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. And of course, what stories mean is everything. That's what stories are about. They are there to mean something. Um, And so I really love that we're doing that here. Um, But yeah, the discussion that I'm most excited, I think, about getting into with you today is this idea of villainy. Um, And where you're talking about the seeds of villainy's undoing are planted in the heart of villainy. I just want you to talk about that. I'm really interested in those ideas. Okay, so this is a thing that's going to crop up a lot throughout Mm -hmm. Morrison's particular run on JLA. Possibly Mm -hmm. most pointed in a story they did called uh, Earth 2, where Mm -hmm. there is an antimatter universe where evil is the virtue and good is the vice, you know? And we see (laughs) that Mm -hmm. what it's like when the evil version of the Justice League comes to the Justice League's Earth and vice versa, right? Like, they really go Mm -hmm. meta with it. But you're going to see it throughout. that, Like, at the center of villainy... It's dumb, like it's foolish, it's greedy, it's banal, like that's the deal. It, it can't see beyond mm-hmm. itself and it shoots yeah. itself in the foot with self-interest. So here you have two of the most brilliant uh, machine learning and robotics minds in the DC universe, which is saying some shit, okay? Like Lex okay. Luthor mm-hmm. exists here, Dr. Savannah exists mm-hmm. here, but if you want a robot and some AI built, mm-hmm. these are your guys. Uh, uh-huh. so, so like real quick, cause they dropped some of the names like Evo created, uh, Amazo, um, which is right. an Android who can absorb superpowers. So like, as soon as you use your power in front of the Android, it has all your powers and can use them against you. 
I love that. But, and I was convinced the whole time I was texting you and I'm like, the blue Superman is amazing, <laughs> right? Like, is that why we're... Because I'm so used to contained story spaces. Yeah, you know? not, not so much um, here. It's yeah. bleeding all over the place. Yeah. Um, but that's like kind of a pinnacle, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, of, ro- of robotic technology. And then Tio Morrow has created multiple artificial life forms who mm-hmm. were meant to infiltrate a team, usually the JLA, and who instead then turn good. Like, t- Tomorrow Woman's not the first one. Red Tornado did this. Um, over on the other <gasps> oh, side hey. of the street, this is the Visions story too mm-hmm. uh this yeah, is yeah, yeah it's also yeah. wonder man who's mm-hmm. not a robot but he was created by ultron who is a robot created mm-hmm. to be a good thing that went bad so sometimes it goes the other way but the the, right. the thing about it is when the in, when the infiltration happens then it's it's like um a circuit like yeah they're there to kill the team but they're watching the team be good people and they're so complex in their machine learning that it starts to have an impact on them. So I say all that to say, here's uh, the two greatest, the, the guys who could get this done, the two guys who could absolutely get this plan off the ground. Mm-hmm. But Morrow is so much more interested in winning against Evo. Right. He's more interested in being the more brilliant scientist, right? It's his greed. So if he accidentally does good, he, then okay. Oh, and I'm not even convinced it was accidental. I think he was doing it on purpose and proving a point yeah. to Evo. Like he to fucked win, Evo over right. to just say, "I'm this is how much smarter I am than you. Look at this. And it's that kind of like self-interest or greed or just uh, these really small, petty emotions that it's not that they aren't in our heroes, it's that they rise above them. And when the villains mm-hmm. don't, that's usually where the heroes find the leverage to win. There's a mistake is right. made because they just can't see past their own ego. And you're going to keep seeing mm-hmm. that, but I just, it's it's maybe not appropriate for every single superhero story, obviously, but when mm-hmm. we're dealing with these like big archetypal characters that, that the big guns are for DC, these big yeah. archetypes, mm-hmm. I, I just really, I really like to see that because I, I think it's reflected in the real world, maybe smaller, mm-hmm. but I think the banality of evil is, you know, it can be wide as an ocean, but it's deep as a puddle and that's not yeah. goodness. Goodness has layers. Mm-hmm. Goodness matters mm-hmm. more. And I like that in my aspirational fiction. Okay, I'm done gushing. Uh. <laughs> I love all of that. Absolutely. Um, and I love that moment, too, with like, you know, we're doing this to, to use some some terminology that you have taught me, uh, like, you know, the face turn. So first she's face, then she's heel. Then we see her do face again, which is unexpected because the heel turn is usually the big moment. Yeah. So that was really fun to kind of like have that subverted as well. But the thing is, is that like to subvert something just for the sake of subversion is not enough to subvert something when that subversion means something yeah that's when you get this brilliant kind of storytelling um so i am super super jazzed about like all of this it's so much fun it's so much fun to talk about um and you know one of the things too is that like i i really love this bookends thing that we've got going on with this is a true story and we end with this is a true story now when i was originally reading it what I thought that meant was this is not a true story. This is some mm-hmm. bullshit. Because if somebody tells you they're telling a true story, usually that means that they're not, right? And with and in a story in which in the contained space that we're in, um, there's the face heel and then heel to face turn, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So we're doing that around. I'm expecting something from all of that. At the same time, looking back at the older stuff, we always, like, there's often this narrator voice that's yeah. going on over it. So my question for you is, like, first I wanted to point out that I love bookends. Uh-huh. So for me, it'll it'll feed my little writer's heart every time <laughs> I see bookends. I'm always going to take delight in that. Who is the narrator? Like, oh, who man. is telling this story? Is this like a DC universal voice? Um, what What is that? What is that about? Oh, man. That is... Is that a bigger question? As you can imagine, a bigger question <laughs> than you might suppose. So yeah. mm-hmm. there were always narration boxes, like from the beginning mm-hmm. of superhero comics. In fact, one of the things you can see them working out in the golden age is that, hey, there are pictures here. We don't actually have to write mm-hmm. everything that's going on because at, at the first, mm-hmm. you got them both. Here's the picture. Here's the narration, yeah. like telling you exactly what happened. And mm-hmm. that was always just that sort of like, 
there was no personality to it. It's like a third person omniscient, you know, kind of like just, you know, getting you from one place to the other. Um, when Marvel comes around, I think is really when we start to see an experiment with that because Stan's mm-hmm. voice came through some of those narration boxes. And there was a, a little bit of distance between an editor's note, which which Stan would literally sign. Mm-hmm. You know, that happened in mm-hmm. Adventures number 147, True Believer, smiling Stan. You know, like he'd sign those. <laughs> but you'd get a little of that like hyperbolic Stanley voice even in the in the regular narration. And I think maybe I, I don't want to say it hit a peak. Because there's definitely been mm-hmm. people who, like, like She-Hulk has broken the fourth wall in the past, Deadpool does all the time, where they will literally have a conversation with the reader and the narrator, sometimes all at the same time. So there's been some weird shit. But man, when mm-hmm. Chris Claremont was writing the X-Men, their narration, Chris Claremont's narration was so over the top and so all over the place that every now and then the narrator would yell at a character in the story and they would <laughs> respond. <laughs> It's a I lot. Love that. So in this case, who is the narrator? I'm not sure, right? Like, I don't know who's insisting that this is a true story. I'm not even sure why they feel the need to insist that it's a true story, yeah. you know? Like, um, other than maybe reacting to some of that, uh, not, you know, an imaginary story, uh, uh, like sure. history, you know? Um, because, for the record, whenever they did something really shocking and it wasn't an imaginary story, it would literally say on the cover, this became a cliche, not a hoax, not an imaginary story. <laughs> so, I mean, right. and, and Morrison, of course, is very steeped in a lot of that Silver Age stuff, especially the Superman sure. stuff. So I don't, I don't have a good answer here. But I really appreciate that there is a narrator because we don't know. We don't typically we will not typically have one in Justice League, but we have one here. And I feel like it's because we needed. Oh, what's the right word? A chorus, right? A muse to talk to us about Mm -hmm. this morality play that we're having in front of us. Like it's a it's a little bit of it's still totally a JLA story, but it's also a little bit of a fairy tale. And we need a once upon a time for that to kind of, you know. Let that breathe. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. As part of the aesthetic for the story so mm-hmm. that it becomes, because there are certain things like, you know, voiceover in a classic noir, right? right. You know, if you're looking at a classic noir movie, we always do those voiceover. We need that first person kind of perspective, you know, to bring us into it. And the thing is, is that film usually without narration becomes omniscient just by nature, right? right? We don't yeah. really. So to enforce that first person, we are seeing things purely through the perspective of this particular protagonist, you would evoke that aesthetic, right? And so fairy tales have a certain aesthetic. The once upon a time prologue is is a fairy tale aesthetic that is part of that storytelling. And so, I mean, I guess that's my understanding of this is a true story of these narration boxes is that it is, it's partially aesthetic and, um, and maybe something to anchor readers who are savvy about the whole you know, comic book world that they will understand that maybe better than I would. I saw it as somebody says they're telling a true story. They're clearly lying. Like I was anticipating that as well. So I was bringing in all of my like general story, you know, savvy and applying it to something that is so specific to the type of story that's being told with which I have very little experience. So it's, it's, I love that my expertise is actually kind of what tripped me up here. Yeah, yeah. And it's so much fun. It's so much fun to have that, like, you know, kind of that rug pulled out. I think that that's really awesome. Yeah, no, I like that. I, I, yeah, I would not, I don't remember how I reacted that the first time, you know, that I read it. Mm -hmm. Um, But I love that it kind of like, again, this this intentionality for one audience becomes an unintentionality that's so... Well executed that it looks intentional. There's a lot of that in this issue. It does. But yeah, I think, yeah, at the at the core, it's just like, hey, we're gonna do a morality play, mm-hmm. you know? A, yeah. And and so we need a narrator to make sure that we drive this home, you know, um, mm-hmm. in a way that we didn't in our last arc for to catch them when we fall. Like we didn't need that's a great line, and it's an important, like I think it's important to the ethos yeah. of JLA. But it didn't need mm-hmm. to be pulled apart uh, in quite the same way that, like, pay attention. I'm about to tell you something very important about the whole universe. 
you know. Right, right. And this being an isolated, you know, story that this isn't part of a series. This is a one issue wonder, right? You know, right. Um, so we're telling this whole contained story within this space in the middle of a universe that is quickly swirling you yeah. Know? yeah so there yeah. are things in that universe that are going to interact with this in this in these ways and i think that the the narrative dynamics at play in comics and this is part of the reason why i really wanted to especially after doing the mcu and listen up a-holes why i really wanted to continue having these discussions with you is because comics which were the source for the mcu but the mcu became its own contained space like referencing yeah. and pulling from this but not this you know yeah yeah so when you're actually in the source material that has been running with consistent characters for 50, 60 years, you know, um, I think that that to me is just kind of like a fascinating space to be in and coming back into that and and having this perspective on stories and seeing them in this kind of broader context is so much fun for me as a story expert. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, working, working at varsity level. You know, yeah, it's like yeah. you're, you're really diving into a space here that has so much to talk about. Um, but one of the things that I love in your notes is this, this uh, line that like sometimes every now and again in the notes, Joshua or I will write a headline that is just so great that I can't like leave it unsaid <laughs> and make it sound like we're not reading from notes, but I love this. Do androids dream of electric capes in a discussion about goodness? I want to hear your thoughts on that. I love that. Okay. Well, for just so I don't look entirely obtuse, uh, the story upon which Blade Runner is based is called Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? And yes. I think in this case, uh, yeah, that's that's my gag. Do these androids dream of electric <laughs> cakes? I, I, okay, there's a lot going on with Tomorrow Woman obviously sure. in and of herself but mm-hmm. there's a little bit of metatextualness here because i think she is mm-hmm. influenced throughout the story by the jla as a whole but that is very mm-hmm. typified by superman right and this yeah. is particularly interesting to me because one of the many appellations of superman is the man of tomorrow like you've got yeah. you've got man of steel you know metropolis marvel that you know that kind of stuff um and mm-hmm. and one of them is the man of tomorrow because originally uh, a lot of the source for for his powers being from Krypton was that Kryptonians are literally they're humans just millions of years of evolution past where we are on Earth, mm-hmm. right? They are all supermen. This has gone out of fashion somewhat, but the name Man of Tomorrow right. sticks around. Um, it's a it's a theme that uh, Morrison plays with more in All Star Superman, where Superman mm-hmm. discusses. Uh, his Fortress of Solitude as a time capsule from the dawn of the age of superheroes, which means everybody... Anyway, you'll see lots of times more people become superheroes in in the JLA Mm -hmm. story too. Um, So very much typified by Superman's like, you're doing a great job, you know, being an inspiration. And, And it's that that gets into Tomorrow Woman's programming where she realizes... She can be more than the thing that she was programmed to be. Which, friends, I kind of think is a metaphor for our own (laughs) self-actualization. Because the fact of the matter is, by the time you reach adulthood, by the time your brain's done being cooked, that frontal lobe is fully formed, you've been programmed a lot. And I don't even mean that negatively. Like, your parents Mm -hmm. are programming you before you or they even realize that you're being programmed. In fact, the mere ability to be a person like to have a sense Mm -hmm. of self that's programming like you have to be taught to think of yourself as an individual so i mean it's not Mm -hmm. it's not all bad right but of course we get a lot of baggage along with that and then the question Mm -hmm. becomes like am i actually capable of rising above that programming can i choose Mm -hmm. to be the person that i want to be can i be self-begotten by my own self-chosen deeds and I feel like that's where a lot of these like Blade Runner in the more serious kind of noir space. And then in this more silly space with Tomorrow Woman and Red Tornado and The Vision. I th- Yeah, it's just a lot going on there. And if androids can dream of electric capes, then so can we. And it's yeah. a big deal. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I mean, I love it. And the the aspiration to goodness. I also, you know, love going back to your, you know, thoughts about the banality of evil. Mm-hmm. 
that goodness becomes so much more interesting because it is so much more layered. Yeah. That evil is a very simple kind of aspiration. But then to be something that was meant to be evil, that was designed to do evil, you know, even though I think that you could argue that, that she wasn't, she was designed to answer a question. Yeah. Is it yeah. possible to overcome your programming, right? She was designed to answer a question. And I think that Morrow was very, very certain about how that would come out. And yeah. given the history that you talked about with Amazo and Red Tornado and all of that, I think that this was an evolution of clearly of those experiments, you know. And so people who had that context might not have been as surprised by this sudden, you know, back from heel to face turn with this uh, with this character. But also the like one of the things that I love about this is that Tomorrow's Woman really isn't bad in and of herself, right? Because she hasn't made any choices. And this mm. comes down to the essential, um, you know, like centrality of choice in what you are. That when you don't have a choice, when choices are removed from you, when you are created to do something and you are not self-aware, um, it is not a choice. The person who created you to do that thing, who programmed you to do that thing, is the one who made the choice and is at fault for whatever it is that you do with that. But the fact that she, at this pivotal moment, realizes it, makes a choice, um, then she becomes whatever it is that she is. So when yes. the, the face turn, the heel turn, whatever it is that you choose, be it good or bad, that is what you are responsible for. That is what defines who you are. And at any time, you can choose Otherwise, yeah. at any time, you can change that choice by making a different choice. And then from that point forward, moving with that choice. And we see people do this all the time, not necessarily with such great concepts as good and evil. But, you know, here we are at the beginning of yet another new year. We're choosing things that we want to do differently, that mm -hmm. we want to change up, maybe because we're bored, maybe because we want to be better, maybe because of whatever, you know. Um, but it's all of those active choices that, especially in storytelling, are so incredibly important to telling us who a character is and what it is that they're doing and that they have consciousness of what they're doing and that they're making active choices about it really is the most important thing. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I mean, I love me a character who is born to be one thing and chooses another. I yeah. think that that is really, really fun. Um, and that, to me, honestly, is probably one of the most interesting things about this particular issue. Although, I mean, it's full of interesting things. It's just a great <laughs> issue. It's yeah. just a great story. It It, it is. I, I feel like... Anytime, we don't get a lot of one shots, but we get a few two shots, mm -hmm. you know, and every mm -hmm. one of them feels like they could be four issues or six issues or something like that. Like we could have done yeah. tomorrow. We could have done mm -hmm. tomorrow woman for years. And oh, in fact, yeah. we kind of did with like vision, right? Like, like in the comics, mm -hmm. vision was a much like right. sim more simmering concept where uh, mm -hmm. they were around. We didn't know, blah, blah, you know, um, that kind of, that mm -hmm. kind of stuff, but we don't need, that's the best part. We don't need more. We could absolutely do more, but all of this works and it's really, yeah, I don't know. It's just aspirational. It's inspirational. I, I mean, if, if Tomorrow Woman can make different choices, if she can rebel against her program to become better than what she was intended to be, so can we all. It's, oh, I love it. I like it. I like it a lot. It's good, good stuff. All right, so here we are at the end of the show when we pick out our favorite parts, which is always my favorite part of the show. So let's go ahead and start with the art here. Uh, Joshua, what was your favorite page panel artwork? Okay, I'm cheating a little bit here because uh, okay. while there are some great panels, I didn't, there wasn't like one that jumped out at me, but there was like a mm -hmm. motif, a recurring motif. Yeah. So there mm -hmm. are a ton of bird's eye view shots where we're above even our heroes. Now, there are a few worm's mm -hmm. eye view also that keep us in that JLA is larger than life vibe. Right. But I mm -hmm. think it's more like we're smaller than the world around us kind of kind of feeling. Yeah. So mm -hmm. this is all on purpose, right? We're contemplating what it means to rise above our baser selves, our baser instincts, and this is reflected in the art by so many characters looking up to us the reader. Yeah. Like oh and my it's God, just that's amazing. All through it. Like if you go back and read it again, look for all of yeah. the bird's eye view shots. How many times people are looking up at us the reader and there's not a yeah. there's not like an in 
story reason for this. I think it's actually part of the rise above motif that is all throughout this oh, story. I love that. I hadn't picked up on that. But now that you say it, absolutely. I see what you're talking about and what that means, you know. And again, having that meaning to the choices in the artwork, just so incredibly wonderful. I absolutely love that. Um, I have to say, like, I don't think I have ever had this much trouble picking my favorite art mm -hmm. in any of these before. Um, but I finally landed on the page where we see Tomorrow Woman's decision to fly into the center of the energy ball and sacrifice herself to save everyone else. Uh, there's the panel with uh, Maro and Evo at the top, and she is slicing down through the page mm -hmm. as she races. Uh, and panels are weaving over each other. And the thing that I love about that too, now that I'm thinking about that in context of your rising above motif, is that she actually rises above by literally going down into the ball of energy. Yeah. And that I think adds kind of some wonderful crunch to to that idea um, as well. And just the magic of that page itself to me, I I, I stared at it and then I just once I, I'd read it and gotten the story from it, I just kept looking looking at it because I loved that she was coming from this space up top that was evil. Mm -hmm, that was mm -hmm. bad people doing bad things. Um, even though Morrow's intention was to create goodness, it wasn't for the sake of goodness. No. It was for the sake of besting Evo. It was for the sake of fucking with his, what I'm presuming is something of a best friend type situation. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know what their relationship is exactly. They're just, are they rivals in evil? <laughs> okay. They are rivals in evil. But they're working together. They're, you know, toasting champagne flutes. They're doing all of this very friendly type of behavior. They're clearly in this together. Um, and I, I just, I love that, that here we have her slicing down through the side of the page away from that at great velocity mm -hmm. that she is choosing to go away from the space where she started. Um, and I think that that in itself has has a huge amount of, of meaning for all of us who are trying to get away from sometimes the evil from whence we came. Yeah. You know, some of yeah. that may not be due to our own, you know, choices. It's just what we were born into. But at some point, you do need to make that choice um, because choosing not to get away from the bad stuff is also a choice. Yeah, even, even choosing just space. not to deal with it is still a choice. Choosing not to deal with it is also a choice. And that has, I think, moral implications to it. So that visual representation of that, I think, is, is really, really great. I think that uh, I see that page in a new light because of Into yeah. the Spider-Verse also. The leap of faith mm -hmm. that goes so poorly for Miles at yes. the beginning. And then they literally mm -hmm. flip the thing so he's falling up. It's like yeah. not the same, but I feel like there is an element. It is a leap of faith. She doesn't know if it's going to work. She yeah. doesn't know if she's actually no. doing the right thing. It's just in the moment she's like, I think that I'm doing the right thing. And I hate to, uh, this is not my favorite story part, but I think it ties into this, is that... <laughs> uh -huh they take freedom out of her vocabulary. Like that's just perverse. Uh, it is just mm -hmm. perverse to, to create a thing that can't even conceive of freedom, but she yeah. does, even though she, she doesn't have a word for it. Like we get her in her death yeah. throes saying, I just wanted to be, you know, term not yeah. found is, um, yeah. Uh, you did it. You did it. You don't have a word for it, but you did it. You're free. And you got oh free by choosing goodness. Fucking comic books making me cry. <laughs> God damn it. But right, the cool Josh, part is favorite part of the story. <laughs> it, that does flow into both of our favorite yeah. parts. Absolutely. Right. Yes. Like that choice. Yes. My favorite part is Superman saying, and you didn't bury one today. Like it's kind of right. obvious. It's kind of an obvious setup in retrospect. Like I don't bury a lot of machines mm. after you buried yeah. Metamorpho, who is like not really human. A person, a person, <laughs> but not human. Right. You know, mm -hmm. um, and never a question of whether you were burying a person there. And then we bring it up for the machine right. and Superman just puts it down mm -hmm. in the most good natured way possible. You didn't bury one today. Amazing. Yeah. Oh, God. So incredibly touching. Yeah. Um, and for me, my favorite part of the story was I just showed you a soul being born. Right. Which comes from our sources of evil. In this story, this is the guy who is creating this thing with the intent that it will, you know, uh, she will 
you know, murder all of the JLA has no problem with that. If she doesn't turn out the way that he intended with this moment happening, um, he doesn't care. That's not a problem for him. Mm -hmm. This isn't about being good. This isn't about, but also I think part of it too could be about if you are evil, right? Understanding goodness and how it works gives you an edge. So if he's creating the soul, if he's creating the source of goodness within a being, then that's that much more information with which to trounce them next time. Oh, I like that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I like you that. You know, so I mean his intent, right. It's it's a little good done for the service of greater evil in the future because of a greater understanding of what goodness is and how it is attained. You know, how does it happen? Um and I think that that is a fascinating kind of thing like to have so much deep philosophy within these pages, I think is incredible. But that moment, I just showed you a soul being born for me because I was following a million breadcrumbs that had nothing to do with anything, right? I was so focused on all of that stuff that that was the moment. That was the sleight of hand. That was when I was like, oh, this is something else. Yeah. And I absolutely loved, there's so much to dig through with what all of that means and what it says about goodness in general, what it says about humanity, all of that stuff I think is just incredible. And I absolutely loved it. I just thought I, I, I will read this again. I think there's still stuff, even with all of the discussion that we've had, there's still stuff that I haven't, you know, like excavated from this particular issue. And even though I am disappointed, I wanted it to be a longer arc. Um, <laughs> As a one-issue story, I think that this is the kind of issue for anybody out there who wants to get their friends into comics. I think this is an excellent gateway. Because mm-hmm. there, there is no shortage of superhero nonsense going on. We don't flesh mm-hmm. it out as much as we usually do yeah. because it's not the point. But I mean, mm-hmm. there is some kind of computer or being or monster that is just showing up, yeah. destroying mm-hmm. shit on its way to the East Coast. And we didn't even talk about it. Like, it's vital to what yeah. happens because that taking that thing out is what is the final moment that Tomorrow Woman proves right. she, that she's a person, you know, that she can make good mm-hmm. choices. But it's really not the point. But it's also like care. a, a uh, it's also a sort of luck engine or unluck engine. And I mean, Mm -hmm. does that have anything to... Yeah, there's a lot we could talk about. In fact, one of the admittedly a little bit shallower bits of excavation that we didn't get to do during this conversation Mm -hmm. is that you really wanted to talk at least a little bit. Get a couple of sentences (laughs) on each of these prospective new members who are trying out, right? So uh, we're going to go ahead and do that as a Patreon exclusive. So if you are a member of the Chipper's Patreon, you can join us as I do, hopefully like a... Can I do two sentences? Let's say a paragraph, three to five sentences on each one of these folks until Lonnie is satisfied that she knows enough about who they are. Especially Hitman. Really want to know more about Hitman. So if you are not yet a supporter, you can go to patreon.com slash chipperish, uh, throw us a dollar or more, and you will get access to this exclusive content. Uh, But for now, we'll be back next week with JLA number six, Fire in the Sky, in which, ooh, baby, do you know what that's worth? Who made heaven a place on earth? Grant Morrison and Howard Porter did, and it isn't Paradise Found as much as Paradise Lost. Until then, I've got X-ray vision and telepathy and I kill people for money. Thanks for listening to In the Gutter with Joshua Anru and Lonnie Diane Rich. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider talking about it with your friends, leaving a review somewhere, or supporting Chipperish Media, patreon.com slash chipperish.